Hello all, and welcome to this episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores history's military mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long-forgotten heroes are remembered here. Today's episode is titled, The Case of the Missing Florist. That's right, I said florist. Today's episode of No Home for Heroes is taken from case number 478 in the files of the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. By all descriptions, Ed Alt was probably the most unlikely of all candidates to become a missing Marine during World War II. He was 33 years old, married, and a businessman whose profession was a wholesale florist. Ed was also a Chamber of Commerce officer with an active social life in his community when he chose to enlist into the United States Marine Corps. Little did he know that a Japanese bullet awaited him thousands of miles away. And little did his family know that he would remain missing for almost 80 years. Can a map we found solve the mystery of Ed Alt's disappearance in 1943? Stay tuned as we explore the case of the missing florist. I'm your host, Rick Stone, bringing you another great and true story from our vault of history's military mysteries. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the foundation, visit our website at www chiefrickstone.com. We invite you to listen to all of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast or streaming platform you prefer. We dedicate this episode today to all of our loyal listeners in Gaffney, South Carolina, population 12,609, and the hometown of today's hero on No Home for Heroes. Joseph Edwin Alt should probably never have been in World War II. He was almost too old to enlist at age 33, and in fact, he was far beyond the average age of the average Marine, who usually enlisted around age 19. Ed was married. Almost all of the Marines who enlisted were unmarried. Ed's dental work was so extensive that he probably should not have passed his enlistment physical. His standing in the community as an important business leader should have helped him keep him from getting noticed by his local draft board. And, as we said, his profession as a florist was certainly not a skill set vitally needed by the American war machine in World War II. None of this kept Ed from being accepted into the United States Marine Corps Reserves in Charlotte, North Carolina, on 5 November 1942 when he was assigned the rank of private. He listed his residence as Charlotte, North Carolina. Private Alt listed his wife, Mrs. Gertrude M. Alt of Gaffney, South Carolina, as his next of kin. He stated he'd been born in Knoxville, Tennessee, and he was known as Ed to his family and friends. At the time of the 1940 census, Ed was living with his wife in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he stated that he'd only completed one year of high school, enlisted his occupation as a salesman for a wholesale florist, specifically the Charlotte Florist Supply Company. Ed and his wife were prominent in local society circles and the business community of Charlotte, North Carolina, where Ed served as the treasurer 
for the Charlotte Junior Chamber of Commerce. Private Alt completed his USMC training with the 10th Recruit Battalion at Paris Island, South Carolina. And after training and a brief furlough home, on 3 January 1943, Private Alt was assigned to A Company, Alpha Company, Replacement Battalion, 3rd Marine Brigade. On 5 April 1943, Private Alt was transferred to the Weapons Company, 8th Marine, stationed at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Well, you know, a weapons company is kind of an odd thing. It's uh, normally equipped during World War II with 50 caliber Browning heavy machine guns, vehicle towed M3 37mm anti-tank guns, and occasionally the M3 self-propelled, well, they called it kind of a half-track. It had a 75mm gun on it. Private Alt was assigned as a crew member specifically to operate the 37mm anti-tank gun, and I doubt Private Alt had ever seen a 37mm anti-tank gun in North or South Carolina before he enlisted. By July 1943, Private Alt and his company were shipped overseas to bases near Wellington, New Zealand, where the 8th Marines were engaged in a period of rest, refit, and training in preparation for the invasion of Tarawa. And on 1 August 1943, Private Alt, with one year of high school, was promoted to Private First Class. While in New Zealand, Private Alt, or PFC Alt now, and his company participated in amphibious landing training exercises. The Weapons Company 8 Marines, of which Private Alt was a member, was designated to land on Red Beach 3 during the invasion of Tarawa. Private Alt's company with four 37mm anti-tank guns was transported from their training bases in New Zealand to Tarawa on board the USS Haywood. PFC Alt's company commander was an individual we're going to get to know a lot more about here in just a few minutes. His name was Lieutenant Roy Elrod. Reveille was at 0400 hours. What's the O stand for? Oh my God, it's early. 0400 hours on the day of the invasion, and Lieutenant Elrod recalled, quote, We've been up and dressed before the wake-up call. Soon his four guns were sling-loaded from the USS Haywood into landing craft vehicle personnel, LCVP, also known as Higgins boats. Each gun was in its own landing craft with a squad of seven Marines. Evidently, there had been no provision for exactly how they were going to put those guns in those landing craft, and Lieutenant Elwood had to devise some rope slings to wrap under each wheel in the dark of a 37mm gun and lower it into a landing craft. Gun crew members, including PFC Alt, who had already boarded the LCVP, used a long rope that hung down from the gun to guide it into the craft. Once loaded and after a lengthy delay, Lieutenant Elrod's four landing craft vehicle personnels, or Higgins boats, joined the fourth assault wave. At 0853, that's 0800 hours and 53 minutes in the morning, their run into Red Beach 3 on Tarawa began. The preceding three waves, only minutes out in front, were composed entirely of landing vehicle tracks, or LVTs, which had tracks which could climb over the reef. The fourth wave, which included PFC Alt, was composed of the Higgins craft. When these landing craft reached the edge of the reef, they simply hung up. There wasn't enough water over the coral to float the boats with the heavy guns. 
Lieutenant Elrod recalled that exact moment when he said, quote, At the same time I looked and saw the first wave of Amtrak's hitting the beach. The island was covered with boiling black smoke with tracers and red explosions. With another foot of water, the boats would have been able to get over the reef. But that other foot of water wasn't there. We pulled the guns off the boats into the water that was waist deep. We started in with PFC Alt and the other Marines pulling our guns. Machine gun fire really began at the reef. We could see the pier that extended to the reef's edge to our front and to the right. We were all scared, but we kept moving. End quote. Lieutenant Elrod spread his squads along a front of about 50 yards and made sure they kept proper spacing between each other. Lieutenant Elrod watched splashes from machine gun rounds and noted that the enemy was using the textbook interlocking firepower pattern along pre-designated fire lanes. The Japanese fired in bursts of a few rounds and then they stopped. Lieutenant Elrod moved his squads right up to where the rounds were splashing and then held up his hands for them to halt. When the firing stopped, Lieutenant Elrod motioned his men to resume their advance. PFC Alt and his company mates crossed three bands of fire using this method. <laughs> the 37mm guns that were being pulled by the individual Marines were underwater most of the entire way in. The gunners had to watch for holes in the reef, some of which were substantial. Weighted down by equipment and 37mm ammunition, the Marines out front, pulling the guns, dropped sometimes into depressions before the guns. It was nearly impossible to climb out of one. Fellow Marines often grabbed the submerged man's pack or his jacket and simply yanked him out. They would then, then maneuver the gun around the hole. The path to shore, therefore, was not straight. PFC Alt and his platoon was able to guide on the long pier to their assigned landing area on Red Beach 3, which went just to the left of the pier. Keep in mind, ladies and gentlemen, all while they're doing this, all while they're dragging these 37 millimeter guns on wheels, they're underwater, they're being fired on by heavy Japanese defensive fire. As PFC Alt approached the shore, Japanese mortar bursts and artillery rounds joined the small arms and machine gun fire. In places, the water seemed to boil with enemy fire and the water was tinged red with the blood of wounded Marines. Near the beach, Lieutenant Elrod's men passed the dead and the wounded in the water and kept moving toward the shore. Lieutenant Elrod and his Marines hauled their guns ashore and collapsed behind the coconut log seawall. They were spent from exhausted wading through the water and pulling, physically pulling the heavy guns. Incredibly, the four four gun crews had suffered no casualties up to that point. Lieutenant Elrod was ordered to get over the seawall and start moving inland with his guns. A Japanese tank was observed maneuvering to the east, which spurred other Marines to help Lieutenant Elrod's gun crews get the heavy 37mm guns up and over the seawall as the 37mm guns that Lieutenant Elrod and PFC Alt had in their possession were the only things that could take on the Japanese tanks. Taking one tank under fire, PFC Alt and the other gunners score a couple of hits, and the Japanese vehicle withdrew. Then the platoon of 37mm guns, including PFC Alt, moved forward under fire. 
It was difficult to pull the guns in the sand, almost as difficult as it was to pull them underwater, and the gun crews did not get farther than about 50 yards inland. There were plenty of targets for the 37mm guns, and the gunners began firing into Japanese bunkers and Japanese pillboxes. The M337mm gun was accurate enough to fire through a bunker's firing apertures. Otherwise, the Japanese fortifications were so stout, the 37mm rounds had little effect. Lieutenant Elrod's platoon took position on the front line, to the right of Captain Orlando Palapali's F Company, and to the left of E Company. This was in the elbow of the 2nd Battalion's line, where it bent from south to west, and once in position, Lieutenant Elrod's men dug in their guns. Riflemen pointed out targets and the gunners took them under fire using mostly high-explosive rounds. The intense enemy fire made communication impossible with anyone except those in the immediate proximity. Lieutenant Elrod decided to split his platoon, later stated, I put Sergeant Ramsey in charge of the number three and number four guns. They were facing more to the south. We were almost at right angles. He ran out of two of his guns, and I ran the other two. Mine were oriented to the west and to the east. We would check in with each other a couple of times a day, but we operated independently. With our guns 20 or 30 yards apart, we covered a space of about 75 to 100 yards. We had a lot of rounds, a lot of machine gun and rifle rounds that hit the shield of the gun. It was about a quarter of an inch thick, and a good grade of American steel. The main problem was that it wasn't high enough to protect the heads of the gunner and the loader. One of my Marines, named Private First Class Joe Ed Alt, was hit by a round that came over and into his helmet. It knocked a piece of his skull out as big as the palm of your hand, leaving the brain exposed. I knew he didn't have a chance, and I wasn't going to risk three or four other guys to get him back behind the seawall. I just covered him up with a poncho, and he lasted about 30 minutes. He never regained consciousness before he died. End quote. Only two members of the weapons company, eight Marines, were ultimately listed as killed in action on Tarawa. Of these individuals, only PFC Alt was not recovered and identified. And he is in unaccounted for status to this day. In August 2017, the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation received a request from the family of Private First Class Alt to investigate his case. Well, it didn't take us long to determine that he was biometrically not a most likely match to any unknown recovered after the battle and buried as an unknown in the Punchbowl Cemetery in Hawaii. It also did not take us long to find and acquire a copy of a book written after the war by Lieutenant Elrod, which vividly described PFC Alt's death and, as is luck sometimes, and you may have guessed it, a map of exactly where PFC Alt was buried on Tarawa. For almost four years now, we've been offering this information we uncovered about our missing florist to the Defense P-51 
POWMIA accounting command, including the map we found of his burial location. And like Joseph Ed Alt, we continue to wait and wait and wait. And to this day, PFC Alt remains under the sand on Terrible. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Home for Heroes. We hope you've enjoyed today's production, and we invite you to check out our other episodes on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn Radio Podcasts, Blueberry, or whichever platform you like to listen to podcasts. We greatly appreciate your comments, and a special link is available for you to contact us on our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. We again thank you for your support of our mission to provide information to the families of missing American servicemen and missing American servicewomen. Every assistance counts, and you do make a difference. Until next time, be careful, be safe, and wishing you fair winds and following seas, I'm your host, Rick Stone, reminding you that poor is the nation that has no heroes, but shameful is the nation that having heroes forgets them. <laughs>